Every day, we rely on food, fuel, and fiber. But how much do you know about these industries we depend on? In this podcast, we dive deep into the production and processes of these everyday essentials. This is Field Points, an original podcast production from Siri Solutions. Welcome back to Field Points. I'm your host, Morgan Seger. This is the third episode of our fifth series, and our fifth series is focused on the agronomics behind dairy nutrition. We are doing a deep dive into alfalfa. In the first episode of this series, we started with reading your stand and evaluating how it came out of dormancy. In the second episode, we talk about traits and genetics and the best way to manage against alfalfa diseases. Now today, we are going to dive into management. We're going to talk through fertility, and we're going to talk about in-season management of insects and diseases, and how all of these things impact your overall yield and stand persistence. Throughout this conversation, I'm again joined by my co-host, Alan Pung, and our guest, Lita Larson from Winfield United, who works with Cropland Alfalfa. There's a whole host of things. Yeah, I mean, it's just a lot. From, from managing insects to, we do a lot of tissue testing, which mm-hmm. Lita could speak to that as far mm-hmm. as, you know, we do a lot of foliar feeding. We're we're already out there. Odds are probably making uh, a custom application or an application trip across the field to manage insects, keep bugs out. That has a lot to do with quality and yield. And so as long as we're out there, you know, boron is a key a key micronutrient for alfalfa. So a lot of times there'll be boron in the tank as well in that pass. And then maybe even some foliar feed of some sort that we're, you know, there's a lot of different products. So yeah, it's, it's a yeah. good alfalfa stand and good feed is you're managing it. There's probably more to manage almost as far as mm-hmm. when you're cutting is probably almost one of the minor things really. I mean, mm-hmm. it's important, but there's so many other things that go on. Yeah. And that can go wrong too. That's, yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, wrong, yeah. you think about all that you have to manage, and then it's like, my gosh, you get an inch of rain, and all of your plans are out the window, right? You know, so there's so many things that can go wrong with it too. I remember my dad telling me that, you know, like when he's like, yeah, it's great to have all, the, all these plans, everything, and everything's going to go fine and right according to plan. He's like, but there's a lot that can go wrong too, right? You know, so you got to keep that in mind, and you have to be flexible. That that is what makes series unique. Or, or different and what makes working with a co-op like series more advantageous to a grower rather than just buying things from a seed company is that they can manage the entire acre. And so most series employees, all series employees are scouting alfalfa. You can pull tissue tests to see where different nutrient levels are. Uh, potassium is huge for alfalfa. Potassium is to alfalfa what, what nitrogen is to corn. We got to make sure that we have potash out there. Fertilizer prices, you know, obviously were high, have been high. Um, so we've seen a lot of potash levels um, probably fall where they shouldn't be. And because of that, a lot of guys are probably seeing a decrease in yield as well as stand longevity because that, that potash isn't there. So it's important to get, get potash out there. Um, another one that we see that's that's lower in the Midwest and that's probably not talked about enough is sulfur. So sulfur drives protein production in alfalfa. We no longer get sulfur from the air, from acid rain, right? We've cleaned, we've cleaned up our air, which is good, but that means we actually have to go out there and apply sulfur too. And then boron's a big deal to alfalfa as well. Boron can easily be tank mixed um, in the form of maxim boron when you're going out and you're you're spraying um, for, for insects or different diseases. Part of my role and in working with different series employees is actually scouting for insects as well as different foliar diseases too. So some big insects that we watch for um, here in the upper Midwest would be alfalfa weevil as well as potato leaf hopper. So alfalfa weevil wasn't historically a huge deal in Michigan, I would say. Um, these last 
last few years, it has been. It typically infects in, in first crop. Um, typically, we can just cut and get rid of it. So typically, we will come in end of May in Michigan. And so we cut and we're able to manage it. I wouldn't say we typically need to, to spray for weevil in Michigan. However, down here in Indiana, you guys would probably have to be making that that insecticide pass to control weevil. Uh, what alfalfa weevils do is they actually eat at the leaves. And so they'll, they'll cause a little pinwheel in the leaves and, and the leaves drive quality. Leaves are around 400% RFQ, stems are around 70. So we want to keep as many leaves on as we possibly can. So we want to control the weevils because they'll, they'll feed on a lot of those, um, a lot of the good parts that drive the quality of alfalfa, right? Uh, this summer, I would say we ran into certain pockets in Michigan that did have weevil in regrowth on second crop. And so you might have to apply an insecticide to control those as well. Um, but that's, I would say that that's fairly rare. Uh, but the big insect that we do need to control in Michigan is potato leaf hopper. So potato leaf hoppers come in, we typically need to control them in second crop as well as third. Um, and basically what they cause is a little triangle, a little yellow triangle on alfalfa plants. And they basically suck all the good things out of that plant and can ca- cause yield loss as well. Uh, so we typically need to spray for those, scout for those. Um, we use sweep nets to, to scout for those. As soon as you see one, it's time to spray. Um, and once the symptoms of the potato leaf hoppers show up, it's too late. That's what we typically are scouting for. And then controlling leaf hoppers and new seedings is a big deal yeah, too. That's a huge deal. Um, probably not talked about enough no. too. And even, even on my part, I probably don't talk about it enough. They're like a piercing and sucking insect. So they yep. actually are sucking the sap, but at the same time, they'll inject like a toxin back in the plant. So they'll, yeah. it stunts the plants. They'll turn yeah. yellow and, and, and Lita's right. It's by the time you see the symptoms, it's typically, it's, too late. it's typically too late. Yep. I mean, the only way you're going to, typically you have to go in a lot of times, they, it'll not regrow. Even if you go in and kill the potato leaf hopper, you have to go in and a lot of times cut it, keep the bugs out and then, and then it'll regrow. But I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. it's a devastating. And then that toxin, it it's, it's a, in summer, you know, like in a summer seeding, if a guy's are yeah. managing it, as you get later into the summer, I mean, it'll hurt that plant enough where it won't survive the winter yeah because you're um, not cutting seeding every 28 days not, right. you know so it's extended out there so you might let let it get away and then that's when you really get hurt there's there's data out there too and i forget the exact numbers but if they get infected as a seeding it continues to hurt them into a mature plant stage mm-hmm. too right that that initial it's like a disease it's like weed pressure early they get hurt early on as a seeding by leaf hoppers they they'll feel that the entire stand stand longevity alfalfa is not their only host actually so potato yeah, leaf hoppers so yeah. they're actually in they're a, they're a major pest in I don't hear about them so much in potatoes, but dry beans. Not yeah. soybeans, but dry beans. They will devastate a dry bean crop, Yeah. just like they will alfalfa. But they don't overwinter in Michigan. That's why they don't usually show up until a little bit later. So they'll come up. A lot of times they'll ride up storm fronts from the south where they overwinter. They're just little, like, wedge-shaped insects. They're not very big. Fairly quick yeah, life very cycle, quick. Very quick life yeah. cycle. But they'll be around. I mean, like like Lita said, usually in second crop, we'll have to start, man. They'll be yeah. around. Typically. Typically until, until a frost sometimes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just depends yeah. a little bit on the year. Depends on but. the year, too. I will say leafhoppers can look a lot like an aphid. So I've had a lot of growers that are like, like I'll, I'll be out there scouting their field, you know, and I'll, I'll sweep and I'll a net full of, of aphids. And they're like, oh. 
we got to spray. Those are all leaf hoppers. And I'm like, no, these are aphids, you know, so just keep that in mind. <laughs> they do look a lot like aphids. Um, yeah. Aphids are typically not a threat in Michigan. We typically don't ever reach the threshold to spray for those. I believe it depends on the type of aphid, but it's like 100 per 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 net. And so you can you can have quite a few aphids out there and it can look really bad, but you actually don't need to spray. There's actually um, thresholds that the university, the Michigan State has developed yep. that uh, depending on the height of the hay, so taller hay can stand more leaf hoppers the smaller yeah. hay cannot so depending yeah. there's thresholds fairly fairly exact it's it's, it's yeah. i want to say it's exact science but pretty close it's yeah. not a guessing game yeah i i'm probably too aggressive i always just say if you see one spray you know but well, it's i would agree there's, with you. there's a little bit um, of wiggle room there i had a grower i had a grower a couple years ago so you have a sweep net you're checking for him right before i started sweeping a guy was with me he grabbed the net away from me and he's looking in there and i said i said what's going on he says i'm looking for insects in here pung he says i think you've got some sewn in here because every time you come out and sweep we have to spray there's always bugs <laughs> so he wanted to look at my net before i swept he said i want to make sure there's not a bunch of bugs in here already that's awesome oh, that's <laughs> well say i've had some guys tell me if you can't because leaf hoppers are fast right so they can fly out of your net kind of fast sometimes but i have had some crop uh, scouters tell me they'll just drive it because obviously you drive over alfalfa it'll you know regrow it'll pop back up so they just drive in right to the edge of the field open their door and then they'll go sweep the field and then when they come back in usually there's leafhoppers flying around so that's how <laughs> they figure out if leafhoppers are in the field or not they're like we don't even need to sweep we can just drive in and open the door and go come walk around your, for a bit how many so, are in the truck huh? yeah yeah so <laughs> While this management is essential to extending and protecting the life of your stand, it is also important to make sure that when cut, that this will be safe feed for your cows. Yeah, there's different pre-harvest intervals on products. Um, They range. A lot of the insecticides used, I would say, are fairly safe a lot of the really aggressive ones or a lot of the ones that would have really long pre-harvest intervals are no longer used so they're all fairly safe i would say a fungicide would probably have the longest pre-harvest interval that you'd have to keep in mind most insecticides will give you seven to ten days of residual they might have a little bit pre-harvest interval than that but seven to ten days of effective so it's kind of a the timing game too that you have to play because you don't want to yeah what do you want the hay Four inches, six inches tall, yeah, probably before you go out and spray it because you don't to want to eight. be spraying yeah. bare dirt. You want a canopy but, there, so you have to can't wait too long because the insects might be there. You got to, they're going to hurt it. Plus, you have to watch at the end because pre-harvest interval. You don't want to, as far as safety for feeding it to the cows. Plus, you want to have enough residual to get you by, mm-hmm. so that insects don't move in five days before you're going to cut or something like that. So and then you got to um, plan around the weather. Yeah, so it's not. <laughs> so that's, it's a dance. It's a yeah. little bit. Of, yeah, exactly. It's it's a little bit of a dance. If it's at 20 days and potato leaf hoppers come in, I, I usually recommend to cut cut inside at 28 days. Just go out aggressively cut. And then obviously spray the regrowth, spray it six inches, you know, on that next crop. Yeah, it depends too. And you can use... Well, Most yeah. insecticides, there'll be different, there'll be varying rates. And you, so yeah. if you know you've only got a week and you, but you do want to manage the bugs, you can use a reduced rate mm-hmm. too. But I would agree with Lita. Most of the time you're going to tell growers to just go cut, just go cut, make that the first field you cut. Yeah. Unless they've got Harv Extra and they're going to 35 days, right. you know, and they that, have that flexibility, yep. then they could, you know, go in and spray. So it is operation by operation. It really is. There are some varieties that offer leaf hopper resistance alfalfa varieties it's not a trade it's it's through breeding mm-hmm. they actually have more hair 
mm-hmm. on the stems. So the, the it's the, not an environment that the leafhoppers like. I would say most of our growers, though, are growing higher yielding varieties that you could plant yeah. besides the ones that are leafhopper resistant. Most of our top producers are using the best genetics they can, and they're just managing the bugs, yeah. managing the insects. In a lot of them... Um... When they apply an insecticide, will also that they'll also make that boron pass, or right. they'll couple it with a fungicide, or, or if it's early on and that type of thing. So next, we're going to talk about fertility throughout the life of your alfalfa stand. We typically recommend uh, two applications per season rather than just making one up front, just to make sure that you're splitting those applications, just in case you don't get rain, so the fertilizer isn't um, you know available to the plant, things like that. So that is done throughout the life of the stand. It's recommended that per every one dry matter ton of alfalfa, that 50 pounds of potash is, is thrown out there. So if a farmer has a yield goal of five dry matter tons per acre, that'd be 250 pounds of potash and then so on, you know, per every ton and then per every 50 pounds. So um, I would say most of my growers would be doing a split application. Like I said, I did see potash applications application rates fall last year um, just because the price but like I said potash drives yield and it drives stand longevity right and so if that plant doesn't have that that's obviously going to to impact the overall return from that stand. We usually like to see an application of of potash with some boron and then along with that this is after first after first cutting along with that some form of sulfur be it uh, like some pelleted gypsum Mm -hmm. which has sulfur and you're getting some calcium or um, some ammonia sulfate, you got sulfur, a little bit of nitrogen, even though nit- alfalfa fixes its own nitrogen, a little bit of nitrogen early in the spring like that is certainly not going to hurt it. Mm-hmm. So that we kind of leave that up to some growers will go each way depending on what they prefer. If they have a little grass in their alfalfa, then a lot of times, yeah. obviously, they'll go with the ammonia sulfate to get a little nitrogen because it's beneficial to the grass. So that's after first. And then a lot of times after third, when we're getting ready to kind of what we would say, kind of get it ready for winter, put it to bed, um, just an application of potash then because potash is critical for winter hardiness. As is, uh, is, is one of the agronomists at Winfield always says, it, potash is the antifreeze for alfalfa. For alfalfa. That's, how it, that's how it survives the winter. Yeah. So if the potash levels are not good, going to be issues with it surviving the winter. And then as you go into new seedings, as you you know, look at soil tests and you plan, you know, where you're going to seed in the spring or the late summer whenever you do your seeding. We want to see levels of 150 parts per million or 300 pounds of potassium. Our national alfalfa agronomist always calls it the deadly doubles. When those potassium levels fall into the double digits, he's like, no, don't don't plant alfalfa there, right? It's not it's not going to work, right? You're just setting it up for failure. So it's important to, to look at those soil tests ahead of time, too. Um, and then pH is really big on alfalfa. we got to make yeah. sure that, that we're paying attention to the pH levels. Uh, levels of 6.8 to 7.2 are ideal. Um, and if those aren't there, we need to get some lime out there. Typically want to lime two to one year ahead of time of seeding. Liming, once it's established, does not help at all. We need to make sure we're doing it ahead of time. pH is key. Yeah. And, and I want to make sure that that's a very serious topic. And, yeah. and correcting the pH two months before you're going to seed alfalfa yeah. is not work. does not work. That does not work. We have got to get past that mindset of if you if you know you're going to seed alfalfa next summer, that line needs to go on this fall. I mean, it needs to be, like Lita said, Mm -hmm. a year is what we like Mm -hmm. Um, because it just takes time for it to get 
to do its thing. It's got to adjust the pH. And pH doesn't have, it's probably more to do with the longevity of the stand. You're probably going to get initially a good stand emergence and stuff if your pH is not. But as far as very little microbial activity going on, it's not going to nodulate properly. We know nitrogen or alfalfa fixes its own nitrogen. So the stand persistence, if the pH is not right, stand persistence is not going to be good. It's going to be a failure. Yeah. As Alan shared, much of the setup for a successful alfalfa stand starts a year or two before we actually seed that crop. Next, they walk us through how you can best plan for success. It, it's a lot of, I, it, I mean, I think that's where, where Lita talked about before with something that we do at Ceres is per helping manage the whole acre. That's something that I think, something we can bring to the table that maybe some other folks can't because we are soil testing. We're working with them on their other crops. So we have a plan. Okay, we know this is going to be corn. You're going to have this here. Where's Where are you going to seed some? Every dairyman typically is seeding alfalfa every year. Mm -hmm. So where is that field going to be? We got to make sure that that's, we got good soil tests. The lime is right. The potash is right. So it just takes planning, Morgan. It just it's mm -hmm. something we gotta be as series as a retailer, we've gotta be having those discussions with our growers. That's up to us to lead that discussion. And I've been privy to a lot of conversation between you and my dad, Al, because you're the, the agronomist for my dad. Um, and those plans can change, right? So you, you get a plan together and you decide, you know, where you're going to seed, all of that. That can change, too. And so I think that's what um, what's so good about Series 2 is when you're you're taking those soil tests, you, you have those for years, right? You have those results and you've got recommendations and plans out there for years to come. And then agronomists that actually know every field and know all the levels and know, know the soil and all that. Proper nutrition, soil pH, and proper management of foliar diseases and insects will help improve overall leaf retention, which is going to improve your overall quality. The leaf, <laughs> the leaf retention thing is kind of interesting because, mm -hmm. and actually Lita helped us with this uh, mm -hmm. cropland did for a couple of years where we actually were pulling, we're actually were pulling samples from different growers at the bunk after it was out of the field on alfalfa. And, it, and the whole purpose of the study, well, it was a leaf retention study. And it was really interesting to see the differences from one farm to the next, one grower to the next, even yeah. one field to the next on the same farm. And I think there was some growers, it was kind of eye-opening for them. They probably, as we visited with them about it, I think some of them made changes in how they mm -hmm. were managing their hay, how they were cutting it, mm -hmm. merging it, whether the moisture just because all the goodies are in the leaves. If we leave, if half the leaves are left in the field, you know, it's it's like, uh, it just doesn't do you any good. You're yeah. going through a lot of You've just effort to harvest, <laughs> harvest stems. Harvest stems. Yeah, absolutely. So we do have a leaf test available now, and that's, that can be taken by any series agronomist or seller um, to evaluate where, where you're at and actually get that leaf percentage like Al mentioned. So that's called the Calibrate HQ test. And you get this leaf percentage at the end. Um, and it basically tells you if you're doing a good job, if there's room for improvement, and if you're, you know, need to contact your agronomist and talk through some of the things that could be contributing to leaf loss. And so alfalfa standing in the field, the rule of thumb is typically that it's 50-50. So 50% leaves, 50% stems. So we figure you're probably going to have some loss during harvest, right? It's just going to happen. So if you're above that 45% leaves, you're you're in good shape, you're doing well. And then as you start to fall, there's, there's 
there's some room for improvement there. 40 to 45 is where, you know, you're kind of in that caution area. And then below 39% leaves is where we, we dig into what could be going on. So like Al mentioned, it could be mechanical. You know, the, the merging is a big thing. Raking too. A lot of guys don't rake their haylage, but if you're doing baling and, and things like that, that's where the um, raking piece would come in. But merging haylage, um, I, I've noticed just as running the merger, uh, the faster you go, the more leaves you lose, right? So when I always get yelled at by my dad to drive faster because they're starting to catch me in the chopper, I'm like, no, we're losing leaves. You know, he's like, what does that even mean? Uh, but like Al said, as we got you know, we did a lot of this this work these last few years on a lot of farms, and as you as you get talking about it, the the light clicks on in their brain, right? They're like, oh, the leaves are high quality. We do need to keep these. You know, that green cloud coming out of the chopper is probably not a good thing. The fact that I'm losing all these leaves at the merger, that's not good. You know, so it just gets their minds around like, hey, we just need to slow down a little bit. And yes, I know it it might get too dry if we slow down, right? So we need to maybe get another merger. And obviously, I know mergers are not cheap, right? I'm not going to recommend that someone go buy a $100,000 merger. But just just thinking of other ways that we can, we can keep leaves on. And one thing that we haven't talked about much today is applying a fungus side to alfalfa. So we do see that a fungicide application early, whether it be before first cutting, if you can get in the field, if it's dry enough, or after first cutting and after second cutting can help leaf retention as well. Prevent some of those leaf spot diseases that can knock off those leaves um, and things like that. And then insects, like we talked about, such as weevil and leaf hoppers, those can contribute to leaf loss too. So it can be additive. You can have, you know, a disease issue and then plus a mechanical issue that can knock all those leaves off. And leaves are yield, right? They're not only quality, they're also yield. So we can see a quality loss as well as leaves as well as yield loss if we lose leaves. With multiple applications going on throughout their growing season and managing around cutting schedules, timing of your fungicide application can make a big difference on the response you see in your field. Early in the in the season is typically when we see the the best economic return. So when we typically have those wet conditions. So before first is studies have shown there's a lot of um, studies actually out of Iowa State that showed before first was the best bang for your buck and then right after first was also really good too and then typically after second we see a benefit from a fungicide application but then in those in the later crops like your third and your fourth we really don't see a big benefit from a fungicide application some recommend that going in after fourth and, and putting it to bed clean um, can help but there's been very little data that that supports that so early on is the best time to apply a fungicide next we're going to take a look at how growth are using precision egg to improve their overall management of their alfalfa crop. Well, I mean, most of the growers are all using, right, they're they're using all the data. I mean, all the technology available for grid sampling and variable rate management stuff, because, you know, one of the things that drives that a lot is because alfalfa being such a high, that's the most important crop they grow. What's one of the most important nutrients for alfalfa is pH, lime. So there's a lot of, I mean, a lot of them are doing that just so they can monitor pHs and correct that. Mm-hmm. And then variable rate potash. Yeah. I mean, you... Especially you, with fertilizer prices, you guys the way doing they it were. on your yeah. farm for oh, quite gosh. a while. As long now. as I can remember. Um, yeah. It, it's, sometimes it's hard to close the loop yet as far as gathering yield data because there's mm-hmm. not a real good... Everybody's still... Every brand of chopper is still kind of doing their own thing. They are collecting yield data now as far as 
tons and that kind of stuff on choppers, but there's not a real good platform yet for us as series or any retailer to try to tie that all together. Yeah. So how it's, do you, I mean, the, 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 a lot of the software platforms don't, they got the bushel thing figured out real well. They don't understand a ton of corn silage. What does that mean? They don't, you know, the systems, the technology, the software struggles with keeping mm-hmm. track of that. It's just a so for us to try to close the loop as far as, okay, we can see here, they can provide maps, they have all the data there, but I would say uh, we're collecting a lot of the data, but it, I mean, yield data, but it hasn't led to a lot of insights yet. Do you a lot use of, it for crop removal when you're doing prescriptions or are you mostly just looking at soil levels? Mostly, I mean, you kind of look at the maps, but that's a problem. You, you have to look at them. You can't rec- you can't import it and, and have it automated. So you are looking at it, but mostly it's just looking at the soil test data as far as making recommendations and stuff. Um, we're getting there. It's getting better all the time. I mean, a few years ago, there wasn't even any, really any technology that collected yield data mm-hmm. when you chopped corn. But now they're getting to the point where even some of the monitors will tell you what the moisture is on yep. the go in the field. You know, I, I don't think we're very far away from even being able to do some sort of quality parameters yeah. on that, on those products. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know where that goes, if that really means anything at the end of the day, because you can't the moisture is the big thing. And you don't typically feed a fresh sample either. It's R- fermented. Right, so yeah. the so, nutritionists yeah. use the fermented samples. But still, I mean, there's there's growers that would definitely benefit from you that know, being on there. Now the only way we can do it, we kind of know how many bushels of corn are in a ton of silage. On any given year, the government puts out standards that they use for crop insurance. And typically there's seven to eight bushels, they think, of corn in a ton of corn silage. Mm-hmm. So we can kind of tell a little bit on yield, but it's still it's a little clunky. Yeah. <laughs> I guess is the best way to describe it. A good predictor that we always use is just the pay stick. You know, like I said, alfalfa grows an inch a day, so that's roughly 125 pounds of dry matter. So we actually have a stick out there that tells you whatever number of inches you're at that equates to however many dry matter tons of yield, you know. We know that's probably off a little bit, obviously, and you might have some loss of leaves and stems and everything with harvest, but I'd say that's as close to as accurate as we can get from just looking at a field standpoint. There is, I mean, there's technology out there now too that I don't know of any of our growers that are using it, but there's variable rate manure software that'll run on your manure equipment now. That's actually some of the same technology that collects in the choppers too. So I think most everybody we're working with now has monitors in their choppers to where they're gathering yield data. As we wrap up our conversation, Lita and Alan share how all of these management practices, along with things like wheel traffic, can impact your overall yield and stand persistence. They kick off this part of the conversation starting with what average yield is across the country and then throughout their geography. I believe the average in the Midwest is around four dry matter tons per acre, maybe even a little bit lower, maybe like 3.8, but that also, they don't separate alfalfa from other hay too. So that could be with like alfalfa and grass mixes, that type of thing. So there's not a good measure on it. I would say most of my growers aim to be, if they're quite progressive and they, you know, want to get the most per acre that they can, aim to be around that seven to eight dry matter tons per acre. A lot probably right fall right at like five, I would say. We actually get, uh, if you look at the government statistics, average alfalfa yields today are less than they were 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. A lot of it could be because of the wheel wheel traffic issue. 
wheel I traffic really... and potassium levels. You know, yeah. we, when we send soil tests in, the vast majority of our soil tests come back deficient in potassium. But I find that interesting. I, I, and I like to challenge producers on that. What other crop do you grow on your farm? Would you be happy if you grew less corn today than you did 10 years ago? No. So why are we... Why are we happy on the alfalfa? And a lot of times I think it's because it's not tracked very well. Some of the larger dairies are getting better at it because they have scales on the farm and they're typically weighing everything so they have a good, accurate assessment of what's in their pile. The, typically the biggest inventory, the biggest asset they have on their farm is their feed pile. I mean, you think about it. They might have 20,000 tons of corn silage. So they need to know accurately. So a lot of them see that. They get to at the end of the year and they think, oh my gosh, my alfalfa yields are terrible. What's going on? Well, then when you get to hunting, you start investigating it. Well, you know, did you top dress? Did you put on your potash like we talked about? What about the boron? I mean, so we could come up with the plans, but if nobody executes on them, then in and out. Our, our alfalfa yields today are less than they were 10 years ago. It's, mm-hmm. We've gone backwards. The potash really is a big thing, and it's still astonishing to me when I get on dairies sometimes, and I'm like, yeah, you know, pot- potash is a big deal, and I tell them, you know, what the recommendations are, and they're applying, like, maybe a quarter of what's recommended. Like, that is the, if we can't get anything else right, let's make sure we do potash. You know, they'll be talking about, oh, I want to use this PGR, and I want to use, you know, this fungicide on it, and I ask them what they're doing for potash, and they're like, oh, you know, nothing. I'm like, well, let's make sure we get the potash on first because that's that's first and foremost the most important thing with alfalfa and then the rest the rest follows yeah that's a great point we yeah. can't forget the basics yeah we Potash, the groceries have to be boron there. yep and bugs if you ask randy welch those are the big three lita's right we talk about all this other stuff we and, do and randy welch always says number one potash number two boron number three manage the insects mm-hmm. keep the bugs out if, you, if you're going to choose three things to grow the best alfalfa, if you do those three things, In you're going to go, you're gonna go yep. a long way for managing, for growing the best crop you can if you manage mm-hmm. those three things in your alfalfa crop. Then we do. The other stuff's important too, but it's, you know, we, we can fix those things. Right? We can't control the weather, but we can make sure we got yeah. enough potash. We can make sure we got boron, and we can keep the bugs out. Let's control what we can control. Yep. Like Laird always says that. Yep. Yeah. Control what we can control. Yep. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Field Points. We are going to continue our conversation for one more episode with Lita and Alan next week when we talk about other forages. So we're going to transition a little bit away from alfalfa and talk about other feed types that dairy farmers can use to provide great nutrition for their cows. But we will be talking how this works in conjunction with the alfalfa and haylage that they are growing as well. So I hope you join us. That episode will drop next Tuesday. These episodes would not be possible without our partnerships with companies like Cropland. Want more out of your seed purchase? Consider Cropland Seed. Cropland brings you high-end genetics and the latest traits, all backed by answer plot data and season-long agronomic expertise you can't get from a typical seed dealer. That's because you can only get Cropland from leading crop input retailers like Series Solutions that know how to maximize the performance of every variety or hybrid. When it comes to high-yielding seed, your ROI doesn't depend on one decision. It depends on every decision. Talk to your local Series Solutions representative to get more out of every acre with Cropland Seed. The show notes for this episode will be available at series.coop. That's C-E-R-E-S dot C-O-O-P. If you enjoyed this deeper dive, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. Your review and feedback will help other listeners like you find our podcast, and we are so thankful for that.